community solar really does democratize the benefits of solar energy. Nearly 50% of households and businesses cannot actually host solar on their rooftop. And so this is another opportunity to really see the benefits of solar. Even the building that you are utilizing energy in, utilizing electricity in, cannot host the solar itself. Community solar. The model where neighbors, community members, can collectively purchase clean electricity from a central, off-site solar array has been gaining massive attention and momentum of late, offering an option for equitable access to clean energy while helping to reduce carbon emissions and promising to keep energy prices low for consumers. But how exactly is it really different from any other types of solar energy projects? And more importantly, what does it mean for you as you embrace this clean energy revolution? My name is Nico Johnson, your host, as we navigate the inner workings of what has been hailed as the fourth vertical in the solar industry. Consider this your Community Solar 101. This five-part series presents unique perspectives from industry experts on how each of us might consider the role of community solar in our business, career, or even neighborhood. Does it really provide equitable access to solar energy? Will it live up to the hype and hope? Or is it too good to be true? The Department of Energy now considers community solar an indispensable source of our future energy mix. In episode three, we'll hear from Nicole Steele, Senior Advisor of Energy Justice and Workforce at the Department of Energy. Nicole runs the National Community Solar Partnership, which, as you heard from Jeff Kramer in episode one, has set an ambitious goal of achieving one billion in energy savings across five million households by 2025. This represents an increase from three to 20 gigawatts of community solar capacity and reflects an average bill reduction of 20%. How does the DOE plan to support this program? Why did it need to exist at all? And how can you benefit from it in your company or community. That and more I intend to understand in this discussion with Nicole Steele. The Community Solar Series is a production of Suncast Media and Season 1 is brought to you in partnership with EDP Renewables North America. Hi, Nicole. Let's get started with a simple question. How exactly does the Department of Energy define community solar? Absolutely. I love to answer the question of how does DOE define community solar? And really, it's a solar facility, whether it's rooftop or ground mount, that's located in a specific geographic region. So in your utility territory that has multiple off-takers. So multiple customers that could include individual households, businesses, and any other off-taker in that geographic area. Yeah. I think one of the questions that stands out for me, Nicole, given that Part of the conversation in episode one with Jeff Kramer is around how everything is local, is how, or even perhaps a better question is why is the Department of Energy specifically thinking about supporting community solar? Yeah, great question. Community solar really does democratize the benefits of solar energy. So as you know, nearly 50% of households and businesses cannot actually host solar on their rooftop. And so this is another opportunity to really see the benefits of solar. Even the building that you are utilizing energy in, utilizing electricity in, cannot host 
the solar itself. And so it really is bringing the benefits to solar to all households and businesses in your community. In the fall of last year, and more specifically now in first quarter of 2022, your team and the Department of Energy broadly, led by Secretary Granholm, have announced this program through the National Community Solar Partnership that aims to address 5 million households. You know, we talked about it in episode one, 5 million homes, a billion or more in energy bill savings by 2025. That's going from three gigawatts to roughly 20 gigawatts of capacity that's dedicated specifically to community solar. Can you help us understand broadly the National Community Solar Partnership, which you mentioned is the umbrella under which the department you operate in is sort of pushing a program for. What is that program and what is your role specifically at the NCSP? I lead the partnership, the National Community Solar Partnership, and really came on board to elevate the conversation of community solar and really design a program that is in line with this administration's new decarbonization goals. And so really leaning in on ensuring that that other 50% that can't have rooftop solar has access to the benefits of solar. And so we really wanted to make it tangible by creating a target and really a short-term target that seems audacious, but yet very doable. Nicole, if I'm tuning in today and I'm thinking, does this make sense for my business? I probably am asking, where does the business model fit in? There's residential there's CNI, there's utility. As we've discussed in previous episodes, this community solar vertical, which many have called the fourth vertical of solar, it sort of looks like a hybrid of large CNI and small utility scale. I'm curious from your perspective, what's the business model and how does the work at the DOA underline or support this extension of business model for either existing businesses or those that would want to get into community solar? I think the question more is what's the outcomes we're trying to sort of address. And so I think the important thing is, is that there's lots of different types of business models for community solar. The reason for that is because, as we all know, energy is local. And so programming and just the way that programs are designed at the state level are all going to look a little different right now. And so the business model of community solar is going to be slightly different state to state. However, the business model has incredible opportunity to fulfill that distributed generation need where I said earlier that 50% of households and businesses can't have solar on their rooftops. This is a whole other opportunity or business model to open up that market. Nicole, it occurs to me as I'm thinking about this, I've heard you use a term that maybe it would be worth us unpacking a little bit. And the term was, community-driven growth. At a business model level, even at a macro sort of economic solar industry level, folks are often pushing. In any economy, you've got a push versus pull, supply versus demand. There's a lot of push onto consumers who will say can afford, in air quotes, can afford solar and a lot of qualifying of trying to find those consumers. And that has been, I'll see both the opportunity and the bane of the solar industry existence for the last 20 years that we've been a part of it is that there is a whole marginalized opportunity cost of the 50 plus percent who can't put solar on their roof. Can you help me understand this idea then of community-driven growth and how that maybe fuels the business model or expands the pie? Well, it really creates a pipeline. When communities 
take control, like how their energy is produced, who owns that energy, who sees the benefits of that energy. That is, we're really giving sort of putting the community in the driver's seat access to clean energy and ensuring that they have a voice in this conversation and can really determine where the community facilities would be located, who is going to benefit, whether they're low to moderate income households or local businesses or nonprofits in the communities, whether they be anchor tenants or anchor off-takers, or how are we ensuring that the facilities that we want to see either an energy burden reduction or sort of reduce energy bills really do have that ability to go solar. And so it really is a grassroots driven process in that we have this robust online community that DOE manages through the National Community Solar Partnership. And we see a lot of community-based organizations getting in there and saying like, hey, you know, we are super interested in ensuring that, you know, this housing project has access to clean energy or this hospital or community center has access to clean energy. And so it's coming from the community saying, how do we go solar? We recognize that there's this opportunity to create resilience, create local jobs. And we're really hearing directly from both community-based organizations and individuals now, like excited about the opportunity of community solar and really helping drive that conversation. So Nicole, if I'm reading the program properly and understanding how the NCSP intends to work towards getting these 5 million homes and bill savings, it seems to me that an underlying strength of the program is providing at least guidance towards incentivizing solar that is directed towards low to moderate income or LMI communities specifically. And the question I would have is, help me understand the structure of those communities and how they interact currently with solar and why there would be a need at all to either mandate, which may or may not be a word that you would use, or provide guidance for incentivizing solar in those communities. What I just heard you say is they want solar. They're asking for it. So like the demand is, hey, we want it. Then why, therefore, do we need to put in place, I'll say federal guidance around how to incentivize stakeholders, solar sales companies and install companies to go towards those communities and offer solar to them? Yeah. So I think it's twofold. We are working within sort of under administration goals today that created the Justice 40 initiative, which has the overarching goal. So it's a whole of government approach to ensure that a minimum of 40% of benefits in our programming flow to low to moderate income or disadvantaged in frontline communities and other impacted or historically excluded communities. And so this is a lens that is on all of our programs today. And so I wanted to sort of point that out and really ensuring that we are creating a program that is creating access for low to moderate income households to not only see be able to have solar and use solar energy, but really truly see their energy burden reduced, or another way of saying that, seeing a, a reduction in their energy bills. And so that is absolutely a focus of the National Community Solar Partnership, so that Justice 40 is baked into the goals and really the pathway to success, the initiatives that are going to help us meet 
those goals. And so you said something interesting in there in that communities are asking for this. Why do we need to be more intentional? Why do we need to be lifting up programs and projects that are actually doing these things, actually creating access and creating better or bigger bill reductions. And it's because we are only seeing the tip of the iceberg, right? And that we want to make sure that as states sort of lean in on their program designs and are thinking through who benefits from these programs, we're creating opportunities for states to talk to their peers and, and really determine what's working and what's not lifting up those case studies that really point to this program is working and why it's so important to make sure that low to moderate income households are included in those programs. And a lot of it is based off of where the solar industry got started in. We all know that you have to have a high FICO store to put rooftop solar on your home. And so that is an immediate sort of like strike one of like, are we going to be able to put solar on your rooftop? So this is another opportunity to be able to reduce that sort of requirement and make solar more accessible. Now, have we completely solved the problem? I think we still have a lot of work to do, but it is absolutely a goal of the program to ensure that LMI, or I should say low to moderate income households. And we talk about low to moderate income households, that's 50% of the population. So it's ensuring that low to moderate income households have the ability that the other 50% to see reduction in their energy bill, to use clean energy, to have clean energy produced in their community. Do you think it'd be beneficial for us to define LMI? Like, I don't know. We definitely haven't defined it. We've just basically said this acronym means this. It would be useful. Do you have a good band of definition? I mean, there is probably an accurate one, but I don't know it. Yeah. The low to moderate income definition that we typically use is 80% of area median income. That's what most 80% of area median. What does that mean? So the household is making 80% of the <laughs> area median income. So it's Got it. So they're 20% below the area median income. Yeah. Nicole, it probably bears mentioning that I feel a lot of folks, even myself, maybe don't understand exactly what low to moderate means in this LMI band. Can you help understand, is there a formal definition for that segment or that category? So most states and local governments, as well as the federal government, looks up the 80% area median income definition. There are other definitions out there, but that's generally the definition that we use, meaning you're at that 80% of median income mark. I would want to say that while we talk about low to moderate income households, we do want to make sure that we're not framing the community as low income or low to moderate income and that we talk about other community aspects around like whether it's a frontline community or a disadvantaged community or a community impacted by fossil fuel pollution or the loss of fossil fuel jobs. So we're talking about households when we talk about low to moderate income households. That's helpful. And at a broader level, we have referred here to stakeholders. I know that part of any government program and process is to engage stakeholders. And most of the work that you did early in the job since 2021, when you entered into the program, as the head of this division, is to engage stakeholders. Could you help me understand what that looks like? Who are the stakeholders? How did you engage them? What was the result? Yeah. And I'll just reiterate that it's such an important 
part of the process in creating the program design, the program goals, the initiatives that we design to meet those goals, and then also the sort of outcomes that we want to see, or otherwise, you know, I've been referring to the five tenants or the outcomes of community solar. And so we talk to everyone, anyone and everyone who is impacted by community solar, from community solar developers to utilities, to all different types of financing institutions, including commercial banks, CDFIs, impact investors, uh, philanthropy, community-based organizations, environmental justice groups, state energy offices, public utility commissions, and then just sort of everyone in between. And so we obviously did a lot of one-on-ones, but we also released an RFI, uh, so a request for information this past summer, where we got a great response on how to ensure that we're creating equitable community solar. And then we hosted a series of stakeholder convenings, and those included some of the groups that we didn't hear from either through the RFI process or you know through the one-on-one conversations and really wanted to drill down all with the purposes of like figuring out like where are these like major challenges and barriers like what is that bottleneck what's stopping community solar right now from exploding onto the scene and where do these stakeholder groups see incredible opportunity and where they would like to play a role and where they would most benefit from. And so that's really the baseline of how we created the five initiatives on the pathway to success. And those are the barriers that were identified through that stakeholder process. What are these five pathways to success? You all did a wonderful presentation in March that will direct folks to go and watch and PowerPoint deck that you put together that really outlines the program itself. I'd love if you could outline for those who aren't familiar with it, the five pathways to success and how these core strategies form the basis of the program. Yeah, absolutely. And it starts with capacity building and technical expertise. And so this is an existing technical expertise or technical assistance program, I should say, that NCSP had been operating for a couple of years prior to me joining And what we did is instead of it it working in rounds, so we would open it up, a bunch of people would flurry and apply with their problems. (laughs) We need help in X area. And then we would close it and go off and help those 20 organizations. We have now made that technical assistance offering on demand, meaning it's rolling. We've created an application process that is much simpler. And all of that technical assistance is at no cost for any National Community Solar Partnership member. And the only thing you have to do to become a member is to sign up online and you get access to our online community and on-demand rolling technical assistance program. And so we have really leaned in on this first step and are investing heavily in our technical experts to help any organization from program design to performa development to sort of like stakeholder engagement and outreach. And then again, everything in between to 
really roll up our sleeves and create additional capacity for your organization to figure out sort of that, that problem. How do we get into community solar? Like, who do we need to be talking to? What does a pro forma for a developer look like? What does the subscription model look like? That's sort of step one. And we really just built that out and invested more dollars into that TA program. And then I'll just go quickly through the others because, I mean, they're all massive programs. <laughs> and so I could take a full hour to talk about each one of them. And we'll redirect folks as well to the presentation that you did where you presented each one of them as well. Yeah. And so super quickly, just we created a states collaborative that has over 30 states participating already. As I said earlier, states are you know, sort of leading the way on the environment of community solar. And what is your community solar you know, regulations and programming going to look like when you're building, developing and managing community solar? in that state. And so it's so important that we're bringing states together so they can learn from one another and really us provide the resources that they need to create programs that are going to be successful. So that's step two. Step three is leaning into access to capital. So we heard time and time again, you know, like problems with community solar and, and really that community based community driven solar that has low to moderate income subscription carve out solar that has greater subscription savings it's harder to access sort of affordable debt and even access tax equity and so this is a whole other initiative i could talk about the credit ready solar initiative is really designed to standardize the marketplace for community solar and really create better access to both debt and tax equity and philanthropy. And then next is exciting tool that we're creating for customer engagement. So just during Earth, we announced DOE. So the National Community Solar Partnership in partnership with HHS is going to create a tool to partner with local LIHEAP offices to create a platform where we connect available community solar subscriptions with LIHEAP customers. And what is LIHEAP? LIHEAP is an energy assistance program to help individual households that are having trouble paying their utility bills. And it's a subsidy program. And so it's really identifying and pre-qualifying uh, low-income households for community solar. And so that's what the tool would do. The reason that this is so exciting is because it's streamlining the application process for low-income households to access community low-income community solar carve-outs. It's utilizing organizations in the community that already have trust in those households. And so I think that's one sort of hurdle that we heard time and time again from community solar developers and community solar subscription managers of like, we're this solar company going in and trying to sell a subscription that says you get an energy bill reduction and like that's too good to be true. And so who would trust that? And so low-income communities, rightly so, sort of have a trust issue with somebody trying to sell you something that does, seems too good to be true. And so this tool is really leveraging a lot of that infrastructure that already exists today with community groups and trust building. And so we're kind of connecting the dots on a whole bunch of levels there. You know, what's cool about the program as well that I'll add on is it's not abundantly clear for those that are listening that this is a validation tool for the consumer. 
right? Everybody often thinks that as solar, we're so xenophobic in the sense, like we believe that we need to qualify them as opposed to they, as the consumers get to choose their electricity provider. And they're often taken advantage of. They're often offered unbelievable things that they go away. This is too good to be true. I'm not going to fall for that again. And what you've put together is a tool that effectively helps both sides get comfortable with one another. It's an existing program that developers can tap into that both reassures the homeowner, or in this case, the low to moderate income community member, that they can trust this provider that's not trying to take advantage of them. And it also helps underwriters get comfortable with the credit risk of the off-taker, which is something that we all think about in our industry is like why we would need a FICO score. Absolutely. You hit the nail on the head with that last one and that it really does almost create a market for low-income community solar in that the LIHEAP program has already uh, qualified all of these households and it's de-risking sort of the ability to connect directly with those households. It's pretty huge and a number of different levels. So rolling out that platform, we're rolling out the beginnings of that conversation just right now. So like I said, launched during Earth Week and we're identifying the pilot states now. So stay tuned on the pilot states that'll be participating. Nicole, I want to make sure that folks understand the WIFM, right? What's in it for me? How does this actually matter for me if I'm operating a business or if I'm trying to really wrap my head around community solar? And at a macro level, the question might be, is there something fundamentally different about this program in the way that I interact with it versus state programs than there are traditional community solar projects or offers that consumers could otherwise purchase electricity from? Like, let's just spend a minute or two on that because I want to make sure that folks really understand how and where the NCSB program contributes to and collaborates with existing state-level programs that both consumers might be familiar with and developers might be tapping into? So we don't want to reinvent the wheel in any way whatsoever. And we want to lift up those state and local organizations that are being successful at getting community solar developed and connected to the right sort of community members, those who are interested in developing community solar. And so I see NCSP's role in, we do a lot of convening. What in the world does the federal government do? (laughs) And we have this convening power. I talked about all of these different stakeholder conversations and bringing different types of stakeholders together is so imperative to success. And so I mentioned the state's collaborative and while it's important to have peer-to-peer networking to learn from one another, we're also bringing in other types of stakeholders to have roundtable conversations with those state leaders. So those include developers of community solar to have direct conversations with folks from state energy offices saying, this in your program works really well. And this in your program is been kind of a problem. And how can we sort of make adjustments? How can we fix this problem? And really sort of like rolling up our sleeves and figuring that out. Doing the same thing with utilities. How can state energy offices and utilities collaborate, ensure that utilities are creating community solar programs that really have benefit, have these outcomes that we're all striving for. And then bringing other types of stakeholders to the table for states, and that includes community-based organizations, 
and just having state energy offices like just better understand like what communities are really interested in, what they're seeing happening on the ground, why are there concerns with siting or access, what are sort of the problems that the community is seeing that they're running into. And so like step one, convene, making sure everyone is talking to each other all the time. But then step two, it's like really figuring out like where are some of those game-changing opportunities? And that's where I talk about the LIHEAP tool. Like there is a program at HHS already that has built a trusted infrastructure with low-income households all across the country. And how can we create a market by allowing folks to opt in to community solar that's ultimately going to reduce their utility bills on a month-to-month basis? So thinking through things like that. Another really exciting sort of like problem that was identified that, you know, is really an issue at the federal government level is this conversation around utility allowance, particularly in affordable housing. And so one of the very first things that NCSP did out of the gate before I even joined was put together a collaborative with multifamily affordable housing providers to figure out how to bring community solar to affordable housing. And the sort of top thing that was identified is like, well, we have this major problem with utility allowances. And so HUD, working in partnership with HUD, they released guidance a number of years ago for the California solar on multifamily affordable housing program. And there's all these other states waving their arms in the air saying like, hey, we too have low-income community solar and solar on multifamily affordable housing programs, we need that guidance as well. And so we worked directly with HUD and there was an announcement as part of Earth Week as well, where HUD released guidance for the DC Solar for All program to ensure that low-income tenants of HUD-subsidized multifamily affordable housing in Washington, DC can still see the benefits of community solar and not be impacted by the utility allowance issues. And so we're continuing to work with HUD to figure out what are those other states that need similar guidance and what does that process look like? And so those are really the types of things that we're, no stone is left unturned and how can we sort of uh, grease the wheels to allow for uh, community solar to just really take off as another opportunity. So Nicole, I think what I'm hearing is that from a federal level through the DOE and your department in particular, the role of convener is allowing for these state level programs, state level agencies to have a macro view through the lens of the DOE saying, Hey guys, let me help organize stakeholder conversations and curate these conversations as you are addressing this at a local level, you can at least sort of lift your head above the chaos and see what other states are doing, but in the form of clear, concise, consolidated guidance, instead of having everyone have to run around and try to figure it out on their own. Is that sort of accurate? Yeah, absolutely accurate. Fantastic. Nicole, we've mentioned a couple of times that equity is important to this. It is a core part of this administration's business model, as it were, Justice 40. And we discussed in our first episode in the series with Jeff Kramer that different state-level policies have different mandates and even caps on the program. They even have specific, I'll call diversity mix requirements. Are there rules specific to the DOE program 
related to diversity in the customer mix? So I would not say rules. That's not how I would characterize it. Really, it's framing a conversation. And I talked about Justice 40 already. And so that obviously is a lens to everything we do. And so if you want to say that there is a goal there, it's a minimum of 40% of the impacts are flowing to disadvantaged communities. And that's the definition of Justice 40. But I would also add that as we have been moving forward with modeling out a target for 2025 and creating these initiatives along the pathway to success, we have also have been incredibly thoughtful about like, there's a missing element to this conversation and it's the outcome. And so we're starting to talk about sort of the five tenets of the National Community Solar Partnership. Democratize or, or make the business model inclusive in that we don't necessarily care what the business model is per se. That's up to the developer. That's up to the utility to make that work. And certainly we can help them, but this is what we want to see happen. And so those five tenets include access to low to moderate income households. So really making sure that they're included. So that's the first one on the list. The second one on the list is increasing energy bill savings or subscriber benefits. So today, the average community solar subscriber sees a 10% bill savings on their utility bill on a monthly basis. Through our goal, we we're looking to increase to double that to 20%. And we're addressing that through a number of the initiatives. But it's really important that community solar subscriptions are really at parity to the benefits of rooftop solar. And so wanted to make sure that the community solar subscriptions that we see moving forward really do bring that 20% bill savings benefit. So that's number two. Number three, resiliency. And so, you know, how do we make sure that we're having the conversation around resiliency and community solar, whether it's storage at a gathering place in case of emergency, putting community solar on a microgrid, incorporating virtual power plants into community solar or electric vehicle charging infrastructure and electric vehicles into the mix of community solar. And so really starting like that, dig into what does it mean for community solar role in the resiliency conversation and how do we make sure that it's like really leveraged in a way that's impactful. So that's number three. Number four is workforce development and really local workforce development. And you mentioned earlier around like community solar is in this like interesting CNI space. It's like not tiny little rooftop facilities, but it's not utility scale. And so it really does create an opportunity for a new type of market that creates more local jobs, really. And so we're having a number of conversations around how does this sort of impact the workforce? What types of training is needed? And how do we ensure that folks at the local level, I mean, it's community solar. And so how do we make sure that those jobs are given to community members? And then lastly, is the community ownership and community wealth building piece. And is there an opportunity for us to really lift up and facilitate the access to asset ownership. And so instead of just seeing bill savings, is there an opportunity through community solar like rooftop solar to actually own the asset and really see the long-term economic benefits of what that asset can bring? Yeah. And that for me is that fifth tenant 
comes to this element that you and I've talked about before, wealth building, right? Is this tied to this aspect of community wealth building as a part of your vision? Oh, 100%. Yeah. So whether it be called community ownership or community wealth building or economic development, it's the same thing. It goes back to what we were talking about earlier around can be a community-driven product and that the pipeline can start at the community level. We're seeing all different types of models pop up around crowdfunding and sort of like the leverage of LLCs and co-op models. And so they're really exploring different ways. Lots of organizations are exploring different ways to really make the asset ownership flips. <laughs> so there's lots of different types of like, I mean, I can talk about this for a long time, but it's really exciting to think about having folks be able to own something in their community, particularly if they're a renter, it really creates this level of you know longer term equity and really the right to the grid in that we've all as ratepayers, we've all been paying into the, the development of this infrastructure and, and how can we continue to benefit from that. Yeah. And how do we, absent being a part of like a rural electric co-op, participate? And uh, that's a, I love this aspect that we can't unpack. The time won't permit for it today. I'll have to definitely have a further deep dive with you about this, but I did want to unpack one more of the tenants and that is tenant number two, which is this bill savings, because I think it's a prominent and important key feature. Anyone listening who is thinking in their head that how do these numbers work? Your presentation from March says that residential subscriptions have an average of three kilowatts in size, save approximately, as you just mentioned, 10% off their utility bills, though obviously this varies. Your goal through NCSP is to get a goal savings for each customer or on average of 20%. So the question is, how do we close that 10% gap? What does this program do specifically that'll help ensure further 10% improvement over the average savings of a community solar subscriber? Yeah, great question. I think that goes to a lot of the different levers that we're trying to pull as part of this program. And so a lot of it has to do with cost elasticity, like driving down costs, opening up markets. The, one of the pathways to success initiatives specifically is drilling into access to capital, access to affordable capital, access to affordable tax equity. And how do we weave philanthropy into that? How do we weave other federal funding opportunities into that? with the outcome of ensuring a greater bill reduction. And so being intentional with that lens of like, that's what we're going to do with those savings is like out the gate is an important piece of that puzzle. So it's like, okay, we're going to make sure that you do have accessible and affordable capital and debt to deploy. That's the project savings into the customer savings. It's an important element to the success of the overall industry of community solar. So that the narrative of like, if you can't get rooftop solar, go community solar, and that it's true and that it is at parity of the benefits of rooftop solar and community solar. That's really well stated. And I want to just enunciate here that while on the surface and as per usual, it will both appear tangible and sort of an audacious, like a BHAG, right? A big, hairy, audacious goal. It sounds like it is, but it is intended, but looking through the lens of data as achievable, it's intended to be a stretch goal for the industry by saying, guys, if we continue having these sort of unitary markets like Minnesota, like Massachusetts, like California, the list goes on. We've talked about them in previous episodes where we see success and maybe even marginal success, but we can't 
consolidate that success into an overarching program that every state, every co-op, every muni can adopt, then we're going to lose here. And the way that we get to a billion in bill savings, and we see this 10% increase in, in savings overall as a program, if we think nationwide programmatically, is the ability to scale what we've learned in the last 10 years of rolling out community solar in places like Colorado and Minnesota. Is that accurate? That is accurate. <laughs> so then a follow-on question there as we bring this to a close, is then success defined by these parameters, 5 million homes, a billion in bill reduction, 20 gigawatts of community solar, or when you perhaps are outgoing from this role and thinking about your next step, will you look back on this program and say, this was successful even if we didn't hit 5 million? And if so, like, what do you see as successful parameters for this? Well, obviously the goal is what we're all working towards today, but success is ensuring that we're meeting a 2035 goal of electricity decarbonization and a 2050 goal of total decarbonization. And so that's where I actually see success. And so community solar is just getting started. We're looking at all of these different challenges and major barriers that can absolutely be overcome in a short amount of time, but it's about being intentional. It's about actually talking about it saying, hey, we've heard you. You raised your hand and said, this is a problem. We're working on it. We're working with you on it. And hopefully we reach that goal, but there is a lot further to go to meet those larger decarbonization goals. And so that's where I you know, sort of turn to developers and community-based organizations and utilities and state energy offices and public utility commissions and say, this is your role too. And we need to make sure that we're creating opportunity for community solar to expand and, and really ensure that folks have a right and to a community solar subscription if they want one. Well, Nicole, as you've outlined here in a fascinating conversation about how this program is meant to work and the deep work that you've put into developing it. We've positioned DOE as the convener. Those who would hear this message are asking themselves, how do I get involved? What does it mean for me? So I'd like to give you an opportunity to give those folks a place where they can learn more and also have you answer as a final question. What does it mean to actually partner with the DOE and the NCSP moving forward? Where can we learn more and how do I know if this is right for me. Yeah, and this is the plug for the National Community Solar Partnership. So if you have not already, please do go to energy.gov slash community solar, and that will allow you to sign up to join the National Community Solar Partnership, join over 1,100 individual members, over 700 different organizations across all 50 states, and participating in the individual initiatives on the pathway to success, accessing direct technical assistance, and just having access to everyone in this space who is interested in community solar. So I would say step one, join the National Community Solar Partnership and check out the resources that we have online. Wait, Nico, there is still one more pathway initiative that we didn't talk about, and that's hearts and minds. The hearts and minds piece is just such an important element to the pathway to success. And that is is how folks can get more involved as well. And so we're really thinking through, how do we talk about community solar? What does community solar mean to you as a customer? What does community solar mean to the developer? What does community solar mean to any of those stakeholders that we talked about before? But then how do we really tell the story 
of the projects and programs that are doing the things that those tenets that I talked about earlier in a way that is really impactful? And how are we shining a spotlight on those projects and programs that are being successful and weaving that into the community solar lexicon? And so that initiative, the Hearts and Minds piece is just such an important piece of the success puzzle. And I really look forward to folks who do get involved in the National Community Solar Partnership, really helping spotlight these projects and programs that are being successful in meeting and outlining or meeting these uh, tenets of of beneficial outcomes. Nicole Steele is the Program Manager for Workforce and Equitable Access Team in the Solar Energy Technologies Office of the Department of Energy. It has been truly a joy once again, Nicole, to have you back on the show to help us further understand not just how community solar is flourishing in the current economic environment, but what it means for that 50% who have heretofore been marginalized in in all of the ways and not had access to solar. Thank you for helping us. Thanks, Nico. Always a great time. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode in this five-part series exploring how community solar works from the perspective of policy, technical expertise, financial analysis, and commercial opportunity. Many thanks to the expert contributors sharing their insights to this series and to our partner EDP Renewables North America who helped make it possible. Here's a sneak peek at what's coming in tomorrow's episode. The Coalition for Community Solar is bipartisan and it's full spectrum. And I think that's because everybody uses power, right? Energy is a universal thing. Everybody should benefit from saving on their power bills. And that's a message that you can take to any state. And it's been really affirming to see the reaction, which is the same in New York and Georgia, which is excitement about this sort of innovation. I hope you'll subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and check us out on the web at mysuncast.com forward slash community solar. That's all one word where you can read more about each guest, find additional background information on each episode and dig into the references from each discussion. If you're completely unfamiliar with me and this is your first time listening to Suncast, well, I've interviewed more than 400 founders, leaders, entrepreneurs, and entrepreneurs in the clean energy industry over the last six years through the Suncast podcast, all in an effort to help you figure out exactly where you fit in this clean energy transition. If you haven't yet, I'd encourage you to give Suncast a listen. It's the most comprehensive podcast in existence, documenting the rise of the solar and clean energy revolution from the voices of the leaders brave enough to stand on the front lines. Community Solar is a production of Suncast Media, and this season one is brought to you by our friends at EDP Renewables North America. Let them be your partner and bring your next community solar project to completion. Find out how by visiting mysuncast.com forward slash community solar. Remember, you are what you listen to. So thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.